This week on the Flatlining Podcast, we're looking back at some headlines we covered in weeks past. And we're talking about money. Is $55 million too much to be spent on quit-smoking advocacy? And should medical debt be waived? We'll talk about all of that from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. And I trust that you had a good Thanksgiving as well. I did. I'm. I think I'm finally out of my turkey coma. But uh, no, it was good. It was always good to get away and get with family. I. I. Mine was good on two accounts because if you recall from last week, I. I said go Lions and go Blue. I got half of that right. Uh, the Lions did what the Lions do and lost. And uh, but I was excited to see that Michigan finally beat Ohio State in Columbus for the first time in a while. Yes. Yeah. And Detroit made a game of it. I mean, they did. But they, they once again snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, if you want more on that, uh, this isn't the right podcast for you. We're going to talk about healthcare stuff today. And we want to start by talking about two uh, previous things that we, a few previous things that we talked about before on the program. And the first one, Ron, um, has to do with hospitals and physician groups charging for my chart messaging. Um, Becker's Hospital Review is reporting that after. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic announced last month that they were going to be charging for messages in the MyChart system. Several other hospitals have come out as well, um, including Evanston, Illinois-based North Shore University Health System, um, as well as Northwestern University Health System, and uh, San Francisco-based UCSF Health are going to start charging for MyCharts. And I'm thinking this is going to be we're going to see more headlines like this in the hospital realm and I'm and I'm just curious just as a refresher you know what's the main reasoning behind charging for some of these my chart messages Well I think we're going to see it and and spread across physician groups as well and the main reason is what they're talking about is not sort of the run-of-the-mill prescription refill or your appointment is on Tuesday these are messages where a patient is calling in with some clinical issue, a change in their clinical status, et cetera. And the physician or mid-level is actually going into the chart and maybe telling the patient, hey, stop taking that medication or cut that medication in half or you know, providing them some clinical direction and clinical decision-making and then documenting it in the chart. And that's not something that happens you know, instantaneously, it takes time, it takes practitioner time. And, and I think what they're saying is, look, if we're going to spend practitioner time to make clinical decision making, and then provide what is really a course of treatment, that's kind of exactly what happens in a visit. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a charge for that for the time and effort to do that. Um, it'll be less than what it would be for a full visit, because there's, right. there's less involved, but it's it's not free, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're going to see that more and more. And, and to me, as long as it's that kind of a message where they're actually going into the chart, they're making clinical decision-making and then providing some sort of a feedback, I think it should be charged. Mm-hmm. You know, services being rendered. And it's important to keep in mind that for most people with insurance, they're not going to have an out-of-cost or out-of-pocket cost. Medicare, uh, North Shore University Health System is saying Medicare patients will have about a 3 to $10 cost. And even for those without insurance, it's only $35. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So exactly. it's not it's not a significant you know thing, but you're you're right. It's it's time spent where someone could be seeing a patient, either a PA or a nurse practitioner, or in some mm-hmm. cases an MD, and and I think rightly they ought to be reimbursed for that. Is, is there already a CPT code for that that Medicare uses, or does it fall under the telehealth codes? Well, there there are there are CPT codes involved for this kind of thing. There are more being developed as well. Um, the coding of it really isn't the problem. It's making mm-hmm. sure that there's coverage for it. Okay. That an insurance company doesn't just say, "Well, I'm not going to pay for that code. I don't think I should." Right. Um, the coding's there. But I would I would imagine that even the the insurance companies would see the, the benefit behind not going to a waiting room and. and having your question answered answered online for costing less than going to sit in a waiting room in some instances. Yeah, you know, it, it depends, really. And, I, I, you know, the way the insurance companies view this, one of the questions, it's a legitimate question, would be, well, is this going to induce extra utilization? In other words, and let's take the, you know, the, the one that we probably all know the best. You know, I've got a nervous mom in the middle of the night, the kid's crying. Mm-hmm. I call the pediatrician and say, what do I do? And the pediatrician says, well, give him Advil and ibuprofen rotating and then, you know, come in in the morning. Or is that going to be charged for? Pediatricians have been doing that for years mm-hmm. and have never charged for it. Um, are they going to induce this extra utilization or unnecessary utilization? I have to pay those claims. Um Clearly, if it's something that is in lieu of an office visit, if it avoids an office visit, it's much cheaper to do it this way. But the question is how many of these will be this and an office visit or just this where there never should have been anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they'll probably be thinking about that. And just one quick other stat for you that that I just found kind of interesting from this brief article is that uh, uh, Lurie Children's Hospital um, in Chicago announced uh, when they were asked about this, they said that they'd only charged for about 300 MyChart encounters last year out of the 300,000 messages that they received. So it's not it's not a significant portion of their what they're doing on MyChart. Right. And I think for the most part, and there will be bad actors, but the providers of service really want this to, they only want to bill for the things where there's a, a you know, a fairly significant amount of time and, and thinking involved. So I think, you know, the pediatrician who answers that 2 a.m. call and just tells the nervous mom, Advil and ibuprofen, your baby will be fine. They're not going to charge for that. Mm-hmm. They're going to charge for things that are going to be a whole lot more involved, more complicated, that'll take more time. Right, right. Well, I'll have the link to that article in the show notes for this program. Another thing I wanted to look back on that we talked about previously was um, some cybersecurity questions. And we had talked about Senator Mark Warner's kind of weird idea that he wanted to have a stockpile of, of medical equipment that might be breached through cybersecurity attack. And as we discussed, that's not really the problem here. Um, the website Bank Info Security, a, a IT news website that talks about these kinds of things, um, pointed out that according to some of the new federal statistics that have come out, the number of individuals affected uh, by the more than 5,000 major health data breaches since 2009 exceeds the total U.S. population, indicating that people have been victims of more than one incident. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has reported uh, 595 breaches in 2022, affecting more than 40 million individuals. This still is something that we've talked about before. It's a risk that has to be taken in the increasingly online world that we're in. And other than paying the ransom to have some of these, you know, the information not leaked or sold onto the, the web or just destroyed altogether, is sometimes cheaper than trying to update the systems that are already in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you, you hit it at the beginning. We want this real-time access. I want to be able to do anything I could possibly do with my medical records, my banking, et cetera, on my handheld phone mm-hmm. in sort of this open environment. Well, that's going to mean that there's going to be security issues. I mean, um, when the only thing that was there was a paper medical record that resided in your doctor's office, it was a lot more secure than what you have today because somebody mm-hmm. would actually have to break in and find it and do something with it. Um, so it's one of those things where you you got to take the the good with the bad. I, I don't think we should go back to just the paper record. Right. But it means we are going to have these security concerns, and we got to continue to to try to address them. And you think about... We talked before about the MyChart thing with the Children's Hospital in, in Chicago. 
mentioning they had 300,000 MyChart messages last year. MyChart, I mean, for that kind of stuff, it's a very helpful tool, as you just mentioned, to be able to get in touch with your doctor without having to pick up the phone or, or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Just wait for an email back. Um, but, of course, there's, a, there's the risk that you take with that of it being exposed on the Internet. Exactly. Exactly. That's the, you know, the negative side effect, if you will. One um, thing that Bank Info Security pointed out that I hadn't thought about before, and I don't think we had talked about on a previous program, is that the number of class action lawsuits against health systems, because data has been breached, has been going up as well. Um, and the example they gave was Los Angeles-based UCLA Health, uh, which paid out seven and a half million dollars to to settle a consolidated class action lawsuit in 2019 for a data breach. And apparently there are more lawsuits going forward with that. Is that something that hospital systems should be concerned about in the online world, or should they rely on their um, the, the business insurances that they have to cover it? Well, so they should absolutely be concerned about it. When I think about these kind of security breaches or whatever, um, clearly they've got the insurance for the you know, for the bad actor, the hacker who's doing the, mm -hmm. you know, the hold hostage or your data key, et cetera. So that's, that's there. Um, then there's going to be the, you know, weird security breach that, that you probably couldn't have predicted. But the things they really need to crack down on are the, what I'll call breaches of negligence. You just didn't have very good security in place. You didn't spend the money to, to take the necessary steps, whether it be, system steps or people steps, mm -hmm. okay? Making sure your people have to change their passwords every so often, making sure that they know not to go after these, you know, these phishing attacks, et cetera. Um, and then there's the intentional inside, the employees that do things intentionally. And, and you got to pay attention to all of the above. Um, so they should be concerned about it. I mean, it can't paralyze somebody and say, well, then I'm not going to put any of this stuff in a cloud environment or I'm not right. going to make, have it be that accessible because there's clearly valuables to having access to that mm -hmm. information. You just do the best you can. Right. And I think the training is especially important. I got a mm -hmm. friend of mine that works for a, a, a large retail um, auto parts, uh, auto parts retailer at their corporate office. And he pointed out that as part of their regular um, IT training, the IT department will actually send out fake phishing emails mm -hmm. without notice and to see how many people click on it. He says in the entire time he's been working there, they have never had an incident where no one has clicked on the link. Right. There's always right. been someone that has clicked on the link, and they know who it is when they do that because they can keep track of that right. sort of thing. Um, and I know that's how they had the, the breach here at uh, Michigan Health not too long ago. Um, four employees clicked on a phishing scam. Mm -hmm. We'll have this article as well as the uh, the analysis from Bank Info Security in the show notes as well. And the last thing I want to talk about relates to healthcare security, uh, kind of cybersecurity, um, but it also relates to a, a HIPAA violation. And Becker's Hospital Review is reporting that a former lab employee at uh, Portland, Oregon's Legacy Health stole some personal information. Um, earlier this year, apparently this person had saved patient files to a personal storage device uh, through external drives and emails and included patient names, date of birth, social security number, as well as diagnoses and medical treatment. Um, Legacy Health says it only affected a small percentage of patients who had tests done in its lab and that they started mailing out letters to the patients uh, last week. What kind of consequences could both this person be facing for stealing this information and what kind of consequences could Legacy Health be facing because of it? Well, so the person clearly has consequences. I mean, that what, what they did was illegal. There, mm -hmm. there are federal offenses on that, et cetera. So depending on, you know, what happened, how much of it was there, what they were going to do with it, there's clearly legal consequences there, as should be. You know, from the health system's perspective, this is where I get into, well, what reasonable steps did you take to try to prevent this? Um, now, you're not going to be able to present, prevent 100% of it. So from my perspective, and I'm not an attorney, but if the health system had taken reasonable efforts and this person just did something that they shouldn't have done mm -hmm. and there was sort of no way to stop it, I mean, we're not going to have a system where people walking out of a hospital or a healthcare facility suddenly get strip searched to make sure they don't have a thumb drive somewhere, right. you know? Um but if the system took reasonable efforts to stop it, I don't think they should be held liable. They're going to have to make the communications and send letters to patients, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. 
And if they didn't, and if it was sort of the Wild West and they kind of knew that people were putting stuff on personal devices, then they should be held responsible. Right, and, and that's that's the kind of the thought I had in, with the idea being that, you know, outside of telling people, hey, it's illegal to put this information on your personal devices, there's really no reason to be doing that. And, of course, it, it sounds like the hospital, they found out about it and, and mm-hmm. acted appropriately. Um, it, I just find it interesting that... Uh, that I don't, and I have no idea what this person is claiming their reason is for doing this. I'm sure it's probably to sell it in some particular way, but um, you know, there's no absolutely no reason to have that kind of information on a personal device. And if, if a training manual says you can't do that, then I would imagine that there wouldn't be any liability on on the part of Legacy Health. Exactly. Well, we'll have all of these in the show notes for this program and at flatlining.net. We want to move on to some newer topics now, and I kind of want to talk about money today, Ron, and um, how money plays a role in our on our, our healthcare. And we've talked before about our healthcare equation, where you've got the quality, the access, and the affordability. And the affordability is the one that it seems like we we struggle with here in the United States. And we've talked about that before that you can have two of those things, but not all three. And I think the general consensus is that we would rather have quality and access right now um, than have you know bad quality, but we can get it and it's cheap, or have high quality, but you can't get it and it's cheap, as, as we've talked about with the different um, scenarios under that equation. And I want to mention a, a new bill that was signed into law in New York uh, by Governor Kathy Hochul up there that is prohibiting healthcare providers from placing home liens or garnishing wages uh, to cover some of the medical debt. And this is in a growing trend of how um, private industries are addressing medical debt and how governments are affecting med- or addressing medical debt. And I'm curious uh, what your initial reaction is to this new law in New York. So, I mean, I have some concerns for it. And, and here are the concerns. First of all, uh, you know, I can't imagine how bad it would be to you know, need medical care, not have the means with which to pay your deductibles or coinsurance or whatever it is, um, and then lose your house or lose, mm-hmm. you know, so you know, have your wages garnished to a point where you couldn't, you know, put food on the table. I mean, you're already dealing with a very difficult medical situation, and now you don't have any place to live. So I'm not insensitive to what happens to the individual there. And so it's easy to say, well, we have to protect those individuals. We have to make sure that they can't have those things happen to them. Okay, you've protected those individuals, but who else did you harm then? Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's look at the provider of that service. And it's not just time. It's not just saying, well, that debt is a physician's time. Let's say that the individual in question, I'm just going to pick something, has MS. Mm -hmm. And the debt got accumulated through some very expensive medications, medications that significantly reduce the progression of the disease, okay? Well, the physician that provided those medications had to buy them. They were out that money. And we're not talking about a few hundred dollars here. We're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. So now that physician has bought this drug, provided it in good faith. The person on the other end can't pay it, okay? And now the physician is left with really no other recourse. They can't send them to collections because the collections agencies can't do what they normally do, which is go after other assets, you know, garnish their wages, et cetera. So are we just saying that that physician should eat all that money? Um, And it's, you know, easy to say, well, that doctor makes too much money anyways. Well, that's really not the case. So that's my concern with it is this debt, it's, it's different than saying, let's say, you know, uh, and I'm not I'm not trying to champion this, but if the government said, hey, we're going to forgive student loans, okay? Well, what the government's saying is that they're going to spend taxpayer money to make those banks whole, if you will. Mm-hmm. This isn't what this says. This says that that private provider of that service, that doctor, is just going to have to eat that debt. And I think there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, personally, I think we do need to do something about healthcare debt in this country and what it's doing to huge numbers of people. But I don't think putting it on the shoulders of the providers of service, whether that be a hospital or a physician is a great way to do it because 
it's going to either turn out in higher cost to everybody else through those, or we're going to start having some of these providers of service saying, look, I'm not going to provide you with this drug unless you give me a deposit of $10,000 or access to a credit card where I know I'm going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and those would be really harmful. So, you know, I understand the, the desire to protect the consumer, and I get that. I don't think just, you know, creating it a scenario where you're going to put it on the backs of the people who provide the service is the right answer. I'm glad you mentioned student loan debt, and I, and I want to talk about that in a minute and talk about the comparison between student loan debt and medical debt and, and the student loan forgiveness program, even though it's tied up in the courts. Uh, but you also mentioned the myth of kind of the fat cat doctor that sits around on piles of cash. Can you spend a little bit of time kind of explaining why that's not really the case? Because there is, there is a caricature out there that is very popular that doctors make too much money and they should, be not, they should not be reimbursed at the rates that many of them are reimbursed at. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of myths running around with this and that, that really aren't, aren't true as far as doctors' incomes, et cetera. Um, first of all, you got to understand that from a purely economic perspective, becoming a doctor is really kind of a lousy thing to do financially. Um, assuming that the individuals who can get into medical school, you know, who are extremely intelligent, et cetera, could do something else. They could do some other white collar function, engineering or whatever. Okay. So these individuals, first of all, have a much shorter earning period. Because instead of, like for me, I went to undergrad, I got my job, first job, when I was 21 years old. I had an undergraduate degree. I did my graduate work at night while I was in my first career. So I've been, I'm 57 now, I've been earning money since I was 21. I've been able to put away for retirement since I was 21. Mm -hmm. Physicians start much later because they've got that much more training to do. Okay. In general, they start out significantly in debt because of the cost of all that schooling and training. So they're going to start earning money where I started at 21. They're going to start around 30. Okay. And I came out without much debt. They're going to come out 200, 300,000 in debt. So I've already got a head start. And for many physicians, their earning period is shorter because you don't want an 80 year old surgeon. Some medical groups have a mandatory retirement age at Mm -hmm. 72. Okay. So from an actual earnings perspective, they really don't make that much money when you factor all those things in, comparatively speaking. Now, when they're in their peak earning periods, yes, their income is very good, but you've got to look at sort of the whole thing. So that's one. The second is if you look at physician incomes, they've not been keeping up with inflation, general inflation. Other white-collar professions have been doing much better. Um, part of that is because Medicare hasn't decided to pay physicians more every year. They've not kept up with inflation. So this idea that all physicians are extremely wealthy and they make more money than everybody else just really isn't true. The data doesn't support it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, and I talk to a lot of physicians, I mean, throughout the, the years, the vast majority of physicians I talked to did not go into medicine for the money. They went into it because it was a calling. They wanted to help people. You know, are there profit-motivated physicians? Sure, absolutely. There are bad lawyers, there are bad accountants, there are bad physicians. But the vast majority of them went into it because it was a personal calling, much more so than they, they wanted to make a million dollars because they could make more money elsewhere doing other things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've talked about before is that an easy way for provider groups to fill patient slots with higher-paying patients would be to stop seeing Medicaid. Right, when exactly. In, mo- I, in most cases, that's... Some of the patients that I, I think the doctors want to see the most because it's the people that need the care the most. Right, right. And most of those, it's not that they just make less profit on Medicaid. They actually are below their costs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I've done analysis for several medical groups where we've told them, look, every time this doctor walks into an exam room with a Medicaid patient, he's pulling $5 out of his wallet and giving it to the state because you're under your actual cost by $5 a visit mm-hmm. or whatever the number is. So, um yeah, they they don't operate under that just profit motivation kind of environment. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked before about some of the comparisons between um, student loan debt and medical debt. Whereas on the one hand with student loan debt, that's something that's a decision you're making, you're signing on the line to take out a loan. Um, whereas with medical debt, in many cases, you are not opting for that situation. It's something that happens. With that in mind, uh, you mentioned earlier how this is different than sort of the student loan forgiveness program because of the, in the student loan forgiveness program, it's essentially the taxpayer is going to be footing the bill 
to have some of these student loans forgiven. Whereas in this case, you're asking um, providers and hospitals to, to, to just write off the losses on, on some of these debts. What other ways would you say that, that the student loan forgiveness program and some of these newer um, laws and, and other even policies from private companies regarding medical debt, how, are they, how they're similar and different um, from each other? Well, I think, you know, you already hit on the big one, which is, you know, if I'm a student or a family, I'm making a conscious decision that I'm going to go to college. I'm making a conscious decision which college I'm going to, which, you know, which field of study I'm going to go into. And I'm signing on to a loan, much like, you know, I made a conscious decision to buy the house I bought and I signed that mortgage. And, you know, so it's not a required thing. Um, And a lot of people argue that argue against the student loan debt repayment program of, well, you know, if these kids can't make enough money with whatever degree they picked, they also could have known that ahead of time because it's pretty easy to say, well, with this degree, my average earning income will be X. And does that make sense given the amount of debt I'm going to do to, to, to get there? So a big part of it is one's a conscious decision. People don't decide to have MS. Mm-hmm. They don't decide to get cancer. You know, nobody wakes up and goes, you know what I'd really like to do today? I'd like to have a debilitating disease that will cost me my, you know, all of my life savings and then some. Okay. Right. So there's a, a big difference there. And then the other difference, like you said, pointed out is in one program, the government's saying, we're going to step in and protect these individuals, get them back on their feet, and we're going to pay this off. And the other, they're going to say, no, no, we're just going to make sure you can't get the money that's owed to you. I would feel differently, and I'm not saying I would necessarily be fully in agreement with it, but I'd feel much differently if they signed a bill that said, look, we're going to create a fund at the state or the federal level for people suffering from from um, medical debt. You can apply for forgiveness, and they'll be approved on a case-by-case basis. And if you're forgiven, we will pay the renderer of service how much you're owed, and we'll eliminate that debt. Mm-hmm. Because then it's the government or the society stepping in and saying, we're going to spread it out over everybody. This is a good thing to do for society. It's a, you know, it's a hidden taxation, et cetera. Um, and we're do, I'd feel very differently about it than just saying, well, we're going to take away the means of collecting a debt that is owed to you as a private citizen by making sure you can't do these other things. That, to me, has some problems with it. So when we see certain politicians respond to problems like medical debt, um, Senator Bernie Sanders is a perfect example. He would argue that, well, this is a product of the insurance industries that we have, and we need to have a single-payer healthcare system where the government is the payer of insurance. What's an appropriate response to that in this instance? Because I know on the one hand, he's making a, a, a decent point that people who have insurance have insurance so they won't go into debt, but they still are. And it's, and it's pointing out some flaws in the system that we have. Um, but on the other hand, his alternative isn't the greatest alternative for a whole host of other reasons. Yeah, well, and it's, it's the problem of looking at, at one specific thing and, and then you know drawing a conclusion on one specific thing. Absolutely, Medicare for All would solve the problem of, of medical debt. Solve it. And solve the problem of the uninsured. Well, but it would create other problems. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't look at it in isolation. Economists love to talk about ceteris paribus, all other things being equal. Because in economic study, it's wonderful to say, well, I want to hold all these other variables constant and just mess with this one and see what happens. Well, that's good in a theoretical or academic sense, but the world doesn't work that way. Once you pluck that one string, the rest of them vibrate. Mm-hmm. And you can't hold them constant. So, yes, if, if Bernie says, well, we could solve medical debt in the uninsured by just providing free health care to everybody. You're right, Bernie, we would. We would create other problems. And you can't do it in isolation. You can't ignore those other problems. And then the question becomes, you know, are those other problems worse? Um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of I was talking to an oncologist once, and, and he said, oh, I can kill any cancer you got. I am, it's easy. Now, doing it without killing you, there's the trick. Right. And he's right. I mean, he, you can give somebody massive doses of chemotherapy um, that will kill the cancer. The problem is it kills the host, too. Mm-hmm. So you, you just can't say, well, this would all be solved 
without and, and ignore all the other issues that come from those things. Right. And and that's what we talked about before on how it kind of set this up with our medical or with our with our healthcare equation. You know, we have right now the quality and the access, but what we don't have necessarily is the affordability that mm-hmm. some people would like to see. And you could point to some place like Canada or the United Kingdom and argue that in Canada they've got the quality and the affordability, but they certainly don't have the access when you have to wait 53 weeks to go see a specialist and right. perhaps in the UK you could say they've got the quality or they've got the access and the affordability but not necessarily the, the same amount of quality I, it seems like when we've tried to do different healthcare reform through policy we've tried to jiggle that equation a little bit to try and even it out as much as we can and I'm thinking back to when we talked about um, having certain preventative services covered uh, by the Affordable Care Act and it seems like that's attempted to make the affordability um, part of that chart a little bit higher uh, by having some things that have to be covered by insurance at no mm-hmm. cost to the patient. It, are there ways to jiggle it around that can that won't screw up the system overall, but do have actual reform um, from where we are now? Um, yes, maybe. Um, so there, there are definitely ways to, and I would argue that the Affordable Care Act was um, not really health care reform. It was a tweak. I mean, it was a major tweak. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was just, you know, fine-tuning, but it really didn't do massive levels of perform, of reform. Um, so there are ways to tweak the system. The question that I keep sort of personally struggling with when we talk about sort of health care reform and tweaking the system, et cetera, is... Um, we know that what's happening today is unsustainable. Okay, we we are continuing to chew up more and more gross domestic product every year. Healthcare gets more and more expensive in this country. It inflates faster than general inflation. So all you need to do is take the trend line and shoot it out a number of years and you go, you know, at some point at this trend line, we're all working for healthcare. And we know that can't happen. We know that at some point, it crowds out so much of the other economy that it'll break. You know, we, we, we've seen things happen in economies where there's a there's sort of this massive break and then it, a readjustment. So my question is, so are there ways we could tweak and we could get a little bit more affordability without giving up too much quality and probably no access? And But, you know, is that is that kind of fine-tuning ignoring what the bigger issue is, which is we probably now are at a point where we're going to have to have some kind of pretty major reform Mm-hmm. to keep it from a break. Um, it's, it's, uh, and I've told this story before. It's, it, there's a, a, a scene in the, um, in the old uh, movie Butch and Sundance, you mm-hmm. know, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, and they're, they've been chased by this posse, and they're, they're at this cliff, and they're behind a rock, and they're trying to shoot it out, and there's a whole posse of guys. And they look down, and there's this long drop, and there's a river below them. And one of them says, hey, we got to jump. And the other one says, no, 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 let's fight it out. Let's fight it out. He said, no, no, we got to jump. we got to jump. And he goes, let's fight it out. He goes, why do you want to fight it out? There's 20 of them. We're never going to make it. We've got to jump. And he said, because I can't swim. And the first one says, hell, the fall's going to kill us. Mm-hmm. When I think about some of this stuff, I think about, are we talking about that we can't swim and we're missing the fact that that's a, you know, this massive fall? That's what's going to kill us. So right. um, long-winded way to answer your question. Sure, there are tweaks, but is that ignoring the bigger issue? And, and without going into a, a whole, you know, extended policy discussion on what yeah. that reform would be, what ideas do you, economist Ron Howergan, have about ways that, you know, aren't, that are more than little minor tweaks like the Affordable Care Act that could fix the system? Well, the first thing I would say is I think there are multiple ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think anybody who says it has to be X or it has to be Y or it has to be Z is kidding themselves. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I think there's a way that you could do Medicare for all and fix it. Now, mm-hmm. not anything that looks like what's been proposed because right. it ignores a lot of stuff. I think there's ways that you could keep the current insurance-driven industry and fix it. There's going to have to be an awful lot of regulation and legislation on insurance companies on how they can do what they can do and what they can't do, et cetera. Um, I think there's hybrid approaches that can do it, but any of them are going to require some major restructuring to where it won't look a whole lot like what it looks right, like right now. It's my own opinion. Mm -hmm. 
Well, maybe on a on another program we can we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, but we'll have this uh, press release that has a link to the new uh, law in New York regarding medical debt in the show notes for this program and at flatlining.net. The other part I want to talk about in our kind of money, money uh, talk today about healthcare is uh, something that popped up in Real Clear Policy this week, um, which is it was brought to them by a website called OpenTheBooks.com, and it's their hashtag Waste of the Day, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Senator Rand Paul's Festivus spending report, which uh, I'll be sure to see in the next few weeks when he when he comes out with that. Um, but it's pointing out the another $55 million is going to be spent for this on the CDC to do more tobacco research. And this is a fairly critical article uh, of that decision um, with the idea being that we've already, we know everything we need to know about tobacco and how it affects the human body. We don't need to be spending more research on it. But the first question I want to ask is it's $55 million. How much money is that really? in the grand scheme of the U.S. federal budget. So to put it in perspective, compared to the federal budget, if you made $100,000 a year in your personal family budget, Mm -hmm. it'd be like you deciding whether you wanted to get a small, not a large, not a vente, not a grande, but a tall black coffee at Starbucks today. Actually, the black coffee at Starbucks has more of your budget than $55 million would be of the federal budget. Hmm. It's, it, it equates to, in this scenario, of the $100,000 personal budget, it equates to $1.37. Right. So, A, <laughs> you know, it's not a large purchasing decision. It's, you know, what a, I heard somebody call it budget dust, um, hmm. or some people it, call yeah. it as couch change, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. Now, I'm not saying that, we should just willy-nilly spend $55 million. I don't know what they're actually planning to do with it, but let's put it a different way. Let's say, for example, that these were really programs that were going to reduce the amount of tobacco use and smoking. Let's say that they were going to reduce tobacco use and smoking in this country through education, whatever their tools are, by 1%, 1% reduction. That means we would spend $55 million dollars to reduce the healthcare cost in this country by 2.4 billion. Hmm. Okay. Right now it's estimated that we spend 240 billion dollars in this country on tobacco related illnesses. These are illnesses that are 100% avoidable because they are tied to tobacco, okay? So, a 1% reduction in that use is 2.4 billion in savings. That's a pretty good return on investment. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's you know when people talk about oh they blew fifty five million dollars, it's hard for you and I to fathom that number because we don't have fifty five million dollars. Right. It's a very small amount of money. But my bigger question for any of it, whether it was fifty five million or five billion, what are we getting for it? Mm-hmm. Okay. And if it was just a you know an awareness campaign about smoking, I might say, well, I think people know. Now, if somebody could show me some good hard data that says, hey, we think this is going to reduce the amount of kids who are going to start smoking by a half a percent compared to if we don't do it, that is money well spent. Spend that sucker, and why aren't you asking for $100 mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So. And, and that's a good point. And I appreciate sometimes when, when people point out where, you know, small bits of the federal budget are being spent because sometimes it's interesting to see that, oh, $500,000 went to study the uses of wood in Arkansas or something stupid like that. And I understand the sentiment behind, you know, you add all this stuff up, it could amount to a small chunk of change that would actually be a significant part of the federal budget and part of the federal government that you might want to get rid of. I think this one, on the one hand, the till is one, it went to the CDC, and the CDC is in the, the hot seat right now for certain conservatives. 
um, based off of where we've come from for the pandemic. Hmm. Um, but also, it's, we're coming up at the end of the year, and I think more and more people are trying to compete with Rand Paul's uh, Festivus spending report, <laughs> at least on some of these conservative websites like Real Clear Policy. Now, you mentioned um, the interesting to see, of, Go ahead. And, and yeah. to be completely you know, fair, Rand Paul's report on, on spending may be one of the only things I like out of it, and I give him credit for it. <laughs> I, you know, we need to have more you know, um, individual acknowledgement or involvement with what our federal government spends money on. So I, mm-hmm. I love the fact that Rand puts it out. I think every senator should put it out, you know, and, and we should look at those things and we should ask ourselves, should we spend that kind of money on a, you know, on the use of wood and a, so, I mean, so that's great. So, I'll, right. you know, let's, let's let it be known that I gave kudos to Rand Paul at least once <laughs> and, and he deserves it. So, yeah. um, Good for him. Well, and, you know, it, but you hit the nail on the head at the beginning that it's good to have these kinds of information public, but it's important to have the context behind right. it as well. Right. And that's what's missing here from this particular article. That's what's usually missing from Rand Paul's festive spending report mm-hmm. is, you know, how much of, you know, if you were to compare it to something that was actually reasonable. I mean, we have whole programs with different countries to help them develop their militaries. They don't partner with the U.S. military. They partner with individual states and their National Guard because that's right. a closer comparison because they couldn't fathom the amount of money that we spent on the military. Uh, but I digress. There, there, there are some interesting programs in here, though, I think, uh, regarding where this money is being spent. And the first $40 million, uh, the biggest chunk of change here, is going to what they call a consortium of population-specific, public health-oriented national networks to impact tobacco-related and cancer health disparities among specific populations. And the article correctly points out that there are specific portions of the American population, particularly Native Americans and particularly some Hispanic communities, um, that have high rates of cigarette mm-hmm. use. And that continues to be where, where a lot of this healthcare is driven because in many cases, it's they're being um, the, the cigarettes and the tobacco are being consumed by uh, people who don't have the same kind of health insurance that other portions of the population have. Right. And then we get back into the medical debt conversation that we had earlier and who has to foot the bill. I personally think that that's probably a pretty good way to spend some money given that those are the people that are being affected by it the most. Yeah, I mean, it, it 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 is from what we can tell from it. It's at least much more targeted. Mm-hmm. You know, do we need to run anti-smoking ads in suburbia? You know, in the affluent suburban areas of of this country, probably not, because the smoking incident there is very low. You know, let's uh, as a uh, when I was in high school, there was a basketball coach at our high school that loved to say. Don't do no good to throw water in the living room if the kitchen's on fire. Right. You know? And so, yeah, let's let's put the resources where. And so that seems like a pretty reasonable place to spend money. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a quote in the grant that, that they pulled out here in this article that they're picking some of these populations. And this is one of those things where I'm wondering if it's a Biden administration thing that they threw in that probably doesn't need to be in there. But uh, they're being thrown in. These groups have been, quote, harmed by generations of unfair and unjust policies and practices, including the tobacco industry's aggressive target marketing to target certain people and communities. That may be the case. Uh, I just find it interesting that sometimes that needs to be thrown in there because uh, it sounds more political than, than public health related. Yeah, it's, you know, those are those are comments to me like, so what? I yeah. mean, it, it's, you know, does it matter as much how we got here as trying to fix the issue? You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, another $10 million of this grant is going to creating and spreading policies to stop youth and adult from smoking menthol and other flavored tobacco products. Uh, now, if I recall correctly, there was talk earlier this year about banning the sale of menthol um, tobacco products in the U.S. And I don't remember if that got any further. And I don't know if you'd seen anything else on that. I, I haven't. I know it was being discussed at one point. I don't think it, it passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next part of the grant, uh, is $3.8 million. And this one I found most interesting based off something that I actually saw earlier this morning on, on CNN. It's going to, uh, a national quit line to provide cessation counseling for people who speak Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese. And the reason this is interesting to me is actually down in Georgia right now, the democratic Senate candidate in the upcoming runoff, Raphael Warnock, um, who is the current Senator there in Georgia as well. He is... 
um, running campaign ads with Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese subtitles because these are the largest Asian populations that are growing in the United States right now. And think about a lot of first-generation immigrants. They might not speak English very well, and they might come with smoking habits and are being encouraged to quit. That perhaps providing some of these quit lines in another language could be very beneficial towards uh, public health and towards the amount of money we spend on smoking and tobacco-related illnesses. Yeah, and, and again, it gets back to, you know, that whole idea of return on investment. I'm assuming that, and I've seen all the data, but that there's data that shows that these are populations that can be impacted. They're not getting the message to don't smoke. It's harmful for you because it's not being delivered in the language they understand, et cetera. So, you know, if all that's there and somebody could say, yeah, we think if we spend this money, we're going to save a billion dollars on, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't seem like just this kind of stuff from the surface of it doesn't seem like just a, you know, the, the typical pork projects, um, you know, the, there's a, you know, there's an airport in Pennsylvania somewhere that got built with federal money because it's in the backyard of, I think it was a Senator, mm-hmm. um, that has one flight a day to and from DC. That's sort of, well, okay, that's silly, yeah. but this seems to be a fairly reasonable approach to trying to solve a problem, especially a problem that costs what it does. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, it really isn't all that different from seeing billboards or TV or radio ads for healthcare.gov and in Spanish or French yeah. in different parts of the country. Exactly. Uh, and the final $2.5 million is going towards, uh, this says, non-specified tobacco regulatory research next year, uh, giving potential applicants sufficient time to develop meaningful collaborations and appropriate projects. That one, I'm not really sure what that means, because that's kind of some of the vague government speak of here's $2.5 million that we're going to spend on something at some point regarding something. Well, and any time the government uses the words meaningful collaboration in the same sentence, that makes me nervous. <laughs> I just haven't seen very good examples of those things happening. So that always makes me concerned about what are we doing here? It's interesting, because we've had these discussions before, either when it came to Colorado talking about um, – legalized psychedelics or the conversation around legalized marijuana you have um you've brought up an interesting um i would say a dilemma for those for people that are both libertarian ish and people that also believe in public health whereas on the one hand yeah if we sell cigarettes in this country they're legal why should we be restricting them um but on the other hand, we spend a lot of money on healthcare treating cigarettes. And I'm curious what, what, what your opinion would be on, on, on some of these different things and then also just in general regarding new regulation on, on cigarette and tobacco use in the U.S. Well, and it, it, you know, you get to the crux of that balancing point between a free society and not going to all the way to the libertarian approach, of, but a free society where we're allowed to do what we want to do and – then being allowed to do things that are extremely bad for us, you know, whatever that is, smoking being clearly in that scenario, mm-hmm. and having our decisions impact others. That's the part that, to me, starts to get problematic. You know, it's one thing for me to, you know, to um, have a, uh, you know, let's say, let's take obesity, for example, sure. to eat myself into oblivion, but smoking is something that's likely to impact others and that my healthcare costs are not going to be borne by just me. They're going to be borne by others. You could make the argument for uh, obesity as well. Um, but it's a single item that I can do that's going to impact others. And you get into the whole secondhand smoke thing, et cetera. So, you know, it's that balancing act between making the greater public good argument towards we should just ban cigarettes. That'll solve. I mean, you know, you want to save $240 billion, just make them illegal. Mm-hmm. versus, well, what does that do to trample on individuals' rights? I mean, and it, you can clearly understand, it doesn't take too far to get that argument down into the vaccine mandates. You know, right. where the individual said, I, if I want to get COVID, damn it, I should be allowed to get COVID. Well, yes, but you can give it to others. And your cost of being in the hospital is not going to come out of your checkbook. It's going to go out of all of ours, mm-hmm. either by our insurance costs going up or our taxes going up. So mm-hmm. it's a tough balancing act on this. Yeah. It, it, you're right, and it's interesting because when we talk too about the medical debt problem, is that if, and if someone goes into medical debt over smoking treatment or even for COVID, as we've talked about, then it's coming out of the pockets of the physicians of the people that gave the care. Mm-hmm. I saw a, um, it, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's it's related. I, I saw a. Um, there's nothing good on TikTok, so don't bother spending your time there. But it was a you know a life hack sort of thing, and it was well when you go to the hospital, don't use your real name or address because then they can't 
keep you, they can't charge you. They can't find you when you need to go to collections. Oh, I was God. like, well, one, where are you, where is, where are you on morality and ethics when you are openly lying and openly taking out debt that you have no intention on repaying? Um, you know, if, if it's in the case where you might go into debt, um, I find that kind of stuff very frustrating, and I'm sure anyone who actually has been in that situation would find it frustrating on the oh, provider yeah. side where they've had to deal with it. But yeah, that's a uh, boy. What a wonderful piece of advice to give people. Yeah, I like. Well, you know, it's coming from the same app that brought you uh, cooking your chicken in Nyquil and yeah. um, covering your face in Vaseline, uh, which will supposedly make your skin healthier. But for the teenagers that are on TikTok, it doesn't. Has your skin break out? <laughs> yeah. Ron, we're just about out of time uh, today on the Flatlining Podcast. So thanks again for, for coming on discussing all this with us. No problem. Enjoyed it. Thank you. You can find all of these things in the show notes for this program or at flatlining.net. Final thought today, we have an alarming report about the amount of children's products that are recalled because of lead. Green Sprouts this week is recalling thousands of stainless steel bottles and sippy cups that were sold nationwide because the base of the products can break off, posing a lead poisoning risk to children. The Asheville, North Carolina company received seven reports of the base breaking off, which exposes a solder dot containing lead. Lead is toxic if ingested by young children. The recall comes on the heels of a report by USPRG that found a high number of recall products are still on the market, including children's products recalled for lead, which is a toxic substance banned since the 1970s. Most notably, lead-based paints have been banned for residential use since 1978, and no level of lead is considered safe in children, even with low levels in the blood they can hurt a child's ability to learn, pay attention, and do well in school. That according to the CDC. The Mentex Group of New York last week recalled a Disney-themed children's clothing set because of the lead and the textile ink on the Egyptian manufactured garments. Those sold at TJ Maxx and Amazon.com. Sippy Cups and Mickey Mouse adorned clothes were among half a dozen recalls of children's products for containing lead. And other products recalled due to a toxin included butterfly nets and children's scooters, all of which were manufactured in China. Be aware of some of these and stay on top of consumer reports and keep your children safe. Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you download podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. <laughs>